This is The Rounds Table. All right, welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. This is John Freilich, one of your co-hosts. Today, I'm joined by a special guest, Dr. Jason Zoe. Jason's an internal medicine resident at the University of Calgary, and today he joins me for a rapid-fire review on four papers related to ID. And big news, none of these papers have anything to do with COVID-19. Jason, thanks a lot for coming on the show. No problem. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks. Well, why don't we just dive right in? Uh, so tell us, what is the title for your first paper? So the first paper I was hoping to review is called The Pirate Trial. Uh, the full title is Effective CRP-Guided Antibiotic Treatment Duration, 7-Day Treatment or 14-Day Treatment on 30-Day Clinical Failure Rates in Patients with Uncomplicated Gram-Negative Bacteremia. It's a paper by Von Dack et al. and it was published in JAMA just in June last year, 2020. Pirate paper. I love it. Great abbreviation for the name. So what was the research question here? So their question was, um, in uncomplicated cases of gram-negative bacteremia, are shorter treatment durations, whether CRP-guided and individualized, or a fixed seven-day regimen, non-inferior to a traditional 14-day course uh, for clinical failure rates at 30 days? Okay, so trying to use CRP to help. That's interesting. So why did you think this was important? Well, you know, I, as a resident and looking at all of those internal medicine kind of house staff manuals that are floating around for R1s like myself, I think the traditional teaching is that typically for gram-negative bacteremias, the typical course is 7 to 14 days of antibiotics. But, you know, that's a pretty big range. And I, I think we all know by now that longer courses of antibiotics are associated with harm, things like C. diff infection, multi-drug resistant organisms, and, and higher healthcare costs. And so I guess the idea with these authors, what they were thinking was uh, in the last couple of years, there have been a couple of recent studies showing that at least a fixed seven-day course is non-inferior to 14 days. But the idea is, can we push that even further and shorten our treatment durations even further? And I guess there's also the idea that maybe one size doesn't quite fit all, and that um, if a fixed duration doesn't really account for any variations in the patient-specific immune response or the pathogenicity of the specific organism, can we kind of guide treatment duration a little bit more individualized using objective markers like CRP to help guide things along? Interesting. Okay, so kind of using biomarkers to sort of help with duration of antibiotics. And you're right, you know, most recently, we've really been saying less is probably sufficient and maybe even more. And so seven days for gram negative and an uncomplicated infection sounds appropriate. So I guess let's find out if CRP helps or not. Uh, so what was the design of this study? So what they did was, it, this was a randomized controlled trial uh, with a non-inferiority design done in three hospitals in Switzerland. For their inclusion criteria, they included patients who were over 18 years old, so adults, admitted to hospital with some kind of gram-negative bacteria and at least one blood culture that was being treated with some kind of effective antibiotic at the time of inclusion. They did exclude any patients that they considered complicated in any way. And what they meant by that was, if within a day of being recruited, if the patient had any fever, any hemodynamic instability, any kind of complications of infection, whether local or distant, like abscess or endocarditis, immunosuppression, or any kind of polymicrobial bacteremia, they were excluded from the trial. They also excluded those with non-fermenting gram-negative bacteria, such as Pseudomonas, Stanotrophomonas, basically your kind of hospital-acquired bugs. And lastly, they also excluded those with recurrent bacteremia. So if you had a preceding bacteremia in the last 60 days, you were non-eligible for this trial. 
Okay, and so what they did was, um, for their study protocol, they randomized patients to three arms for antibiotic duration uh, in a one-to-one-to-one ratio. And they did this on day four to six of receiving effective antibiotics for the inpatients they recruited. So the three arms were, number one, an individualized CRP-guided treatment duration, where they would stop antibiotics once the CRP had dropped at least 75% of its peak value, and if the patient was afebrile for 48 hours. Um, The second arm was a fixed seven-day treatment duration, and the third arm was a fixed 14-day treatment duration. Uh, They left the choice of antibiotics uh, and the route, whether IV or PO, up to the clinician's choice, and they followed them up by phone at 30 and 90 days after enrollment. They actually blinded also the patients and clinicians to the treatment group uh, between randomization and between the time that they stopped the antibiotics, and they, they blinded the outcome assessors kind of throughout the study. So so for the primary outcome, what they looked at was the clinical failure rate at 30 days, and they defined this as having a recurrent bacteremia, any new or local uh, or distant complication of infection, such as abscess or endocarditis, any kind of need to restart antibiotics because of clinical deterioration in some way or death of any cause. And the main secondary outcomes they looked at were clinical failure at 90 days with the same definition they used at 30 days, as well as any adverse events related to the antibiotic use, namely uh, C. difficile infection. And for their stats, they used a non-inferiority margin of 10% for their primary outcome. Okay, interesting. So a randomized control trial, people who are growing some gram-negative in their blood. Now, it sounds like they were a bit exclusive for things like fever, hemodynamic instability, and we can talk more about that later on, but, you know, a lot of our patients in the hospital would have had those, you know, features. And then they got randomized to CRP-driven therapy, so waiting to see when the CRP is reduced by a certain amount, or seven days or 14 days. Does that sound about right? Yeah, that's about it. Okay, perfect. So tell us, what did the patients look like? So they, they ended up randomizing 504 patients total in this trial. Um, it looks like most of them actually did complete the follow-up for the primary outcome at 30 days with a 98% completion rate, uh, which dropped to about 89% by the 90-day follow-up. About 61% of the patients were female. They were generally older on average, with a median age of about 79. Um, and they were actually pretty healthy, too, uh, with a median Charleston comorbidity index of about 1%. It looks like most of them actually had at least mild CKD, so that's 87% of patients. Around 20% each had diabetes as well as a prosthesis or an implant of some sort. And it looks like the the source of the bacteremia itself was urinary in the vast majority of cases at about 69%. And kind of along with that, as you might expect, the most common pathogen isolated in blood was E. coli at 74%, followed by Klebsiella around 17%. Okay, so what did they find? Uh, so, so they found for their primary outcome, at least by 30 days, that the CRP and the seven-day treatment groups did meet criteria for non-inferiority. So the clinical failure rate was 2.4% at 30 days in the CRP group, compared to 6.6% in the seven-day group and 55 in the control 14-day group. Looking at their secondary outcomes, the 90-day clinical failure rate, they also met non-inferiority for the CRP groups and the seven-day treatment groups compared to the 14-day regimen uh, with a failure rate of 7% by 90 days in the CRP group, 10.6 in the seven-day group, um, compared to 10.5% of the 14-day regimen uh, arm. It looks like when they examined adverse events related to antibiotics, most of the events were rare overall, and they commented it was generally comparable between all the groups. Specifically, they commented on C. diff infection rates of about 4% in the CRP-guided group, compared to about 1% and 2% in the seven- and 14-day groups, respectively. 
interestingly, they did comment on a couple of quality measures for the study as well, which I think are important to highlight. So looking at the treatment duration, most notably in the COP-guided group, the median duration of treatment was actually seven days, which is no different actually than the fixed seven-day regimen. But they did mention that the, the interquartile range for that was between six and 10 days, with a total range as short as five days. And looking at another one of the quality measures that would be important to highlight is the overall adherence to their study protocol. So they actually noticed quite a high rate of per-protocol violations in the COP-guided group with a non-adherence rate of 21%, which is definitely higher than the 15 and 12% violation rates in the 7 and 14-day groups, respectively. It looks like they commented this was mostly driven by an early discharge from hospital before they were able to meet the CRP cutoffs, or on the patient's side, declining blood draws or maybe some errors in sample collection. So overall, maybe the patients were a bit too well or the process was a bit too burdensome. Okay, fair enough. I mean, I think I can appreciate a few limitations of this study, but what were some of the things that stuck out for you? So for for one, we kind of commented on the inferiority margin of 10%. And I I think one limitation would be that that's a pretty high non-inferiority margin. You know, I think if you were to encounter a patient with a 9.9% higher failure rate by shortening the treatment, treatment duration, that might still be clinically significant for, for most people. But uh, I think that being said, when we looked at the data, the COP-guided group failure rates were actually consistently lower than in the 14-day group and not higher. So that might be kind of addressing some of those concerns. I think another thing that would be important to highlight is that um, they did have quite a high rate of per-protocol violations in the CRP-guided group, which was actually over one-fifth of the patients. And so the idea is, I mean, if this is mostly driven, as the authors commented, by early discharges from hospital, was this group maybe just by chance healthier than the other groups, which could kind of drive the lower failure rates in the CRP group? Again, the, the randomized design kind of helps safeguard against those things, but it doesn't mean it's impossible by chance. And lastly, I think the other thing is that they did blind the patients and clinicians to their treatment groups while they were getting the antibiotics in terms of their treatment duration designation, but they were unable to blind them after these antibiotics were stopped. And so, especially in the COP-guided group, if you stopped before, let's say, five or seven days, then you would have known that you were improving at least based on your biochemistry, which could have maybe led to a bit of a placebo effect in those cases. Okay, fair enough. I think we talked about this already too, but you know, having a fever or being hemodynamically unstable, uh, those patients were excluded. So in my mind, that means it's hard to know what the generalizability of these results would be to you know our typical internal medicine patient population. The other thing that was interesting too is when you did look at that, you're right, that interquartile range. So some of the CRP-driven treatment actually resulted in longer duration of antibiotics than the seven days. And so I guess it's hard to say, you know, like it, does CRP do enough to help uh, guide how long someone should be treated for, especially? when we have other papers that have shown uh, seven days is probably sufficient uh, and you don't need to worry what the CRP is telling you. You know, anyways, what do you think, uh, what would you say is the take-home point for this study? I'd say at least based on what this study is telling us that using shorter COP-guided individualized treatment durations or a fixed seven-day regimen seems to be at least as effective or non-inferior to a longer 14-day course as long as it's an uncomplicated case of gram-negative bacteremia a febrile, but for study recruitment with all those limitations, as you just mentioned. Fair enough. And is this going to change your practice? 
Yeah, I think uh, at least in terms of deciding between a seven or 14 day course of treatment, I think I would probably err on the side of a seven day course now, given that now we have yet another piece of evidence, an RCT, in fact, that shows non-inferiority between a seven and 14 day course regimen. And I think from the patient's side, a difference between seven and 14 days of antibiotics is actually pretty substantial. But also, as you kind of mentioned, you know, is there really a value of getting CRPs on your patient now to guide treatment durations? I think, you know, in select populations, maybe if you have a super stable patient who really wants to go home ASAP, who meets these kind of study definitions of afebrile hemodynamically well, and if they have good follow-up, I might consider it, but probably I wouldn't consider doing it and discharging them before five days of antibiotics as per what the study was set out to do, and probably wouldn't apply to your typical CTU patient who has lots of other reasons to manifest a high CRP. Yeah, I think that's a nice point. You know, CRP is not specific for an infection. It can be driven by a lot of other things, but uh, okay. I think that's an interesting study. So thanks for presenting that one. Thanks. No, it was a good one to read over. Okay, so why don't we keep on going and I'll get started with the next one. So uh, this study is a randomized control trial comparing antibiotics with appendectomy for appendicitis. And this was by the CODA Collaborative, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, November 2020. All right. Interesting premise. And so what was their research question? So the question here is, is antibiotic therapy an alternative to surgery for treatment of appendicitis? Okay. And and why do you think this is an important question there? Well, you know, of course, I am not a surgeon. I am an internal medicine specialist. But clinically, I've been seeing patients recently who have, you know, comorbidities, but also come in with appendicitis. And they've been treated conservatively, given antibiotics, and ultimately get admitted to MTU because of other things that are also going on. And so when I saw this publication, I I really wanted to better understand what is the evidence for this. Uh, You know, numbers from 2014 indicate that 95% of patients in the U.S. were treated surgically. But there have been other trials with some, you know, exclusions and limitations looking at the role for antibiotics. Uh, the previous trials have been criticized for excluding patients with things like uh, appendicolith, which could put you at a higher risk for complications. And then in the COVID era, there's been a lot of push to try to study safe and effective ways to change how care is delivered. And so, of course, if you could safely and appropriately manage uh, some patients with appendicitis with antibiotics, that would be a good thing to know to minimize hospitalization. Very interesting. Yeah. And so what was the study design that the authors used? So this was a non-blinded randomized control trial. Patients were aged 18 or older with confirmed appendicitis on imaging. There were some exclusion criteria, including presenting with septic shock, you know, diffuse peritonitis, abscess, free air, or if there was imaging concerns for cancer. Patients were randomized to antibiotics versus surgery. So for antibiotics, they got at least 24 hours of IV therapy and then were stepped down to oral antibiotics for a total 10-day course. When it came to surgery, patients got either laparoscopic or open surgery up to the discretion of the surgeon. For their outcomes, their primary outcome was actually a measure of health status at 30 days based on a quality of life questionnaire with a higher score indicating a better overall health status. There were a number of secondary outcomes, including symptom resolution, serious adverse events, rates of C. diff, and then other important things like subsequent ED visits or hospitalizations. All right, sounds good, John. And so what did all these patients look like? So from 2016 to 2020, about 8,000 patients were screened. 
of which about 4,000 were enrolled, but ultimately only 1,500 underwent randomization. And so ultimately there were like 770, give or take, patients in each group. The age was about 30 years of age. Um, the average age was about 38 years. 37% were female and the majority were white. In the antibiotic group, 51% of those patients did ultimately get admitted to the hospital. And adherence in the antibiotic group was 90% compared with 99% in the appendectomy group. And, and I imagine that, you know, that 1%, maybe they just had a change of heart and opted not to go for surgery at the last minute. Makes sense. Makes sense. And uh, so what did the authors find in the end? So the primary outcome was this 30-day quality of life measure. And what they found was that antibiotics were non-inferior to surgery. What they also found was in a subgroup analysis of patients with appendicolith, there was also a non-inferior finding where the 30-day quality of life was uh, similar between the two groups. Now, in the antibiotic group, um, some patients did go on to need appendectomy. It was about 11% of patients by 48 hours, 20% of patients by 30 days, and about 30% of patients by 90 days. Those with appendicolith who were treated with antibiotics had a higher incidence of subsequently needing surgery at 90 days. That was 41 compared with 25% of patients. Now, when it comes to the secondary outcomes, uh, pain resolution was similar in the two groups. ED visits after that index visit was slightly higher in the antibiotic group with 9% of patients compared with 4% of patients in the appendectomy group. There certainly was a higher number of patients who subsequently required hospitalization after the index visit. And so 24% of patients who got antibiotics compared with only 5% who got surgery subsequently needed to be admitted. Um, but interestingly, another secondary outcome was that for those who were treated with antibiotics, they actually had fewer days of missed work. Now, when it came to adverse events, uh, they did see that complications were more common in the antibiotic group, and this was largely attributable to those with appendicolith. Uh, but in fact, there were other similar things like similar rates of C. diff between surgery or antibiotics. Really interesting. Okay, so overall, greater need for rescue appendectomy in the medically treated group and greater risk of hospitalization after after the fact. But I uh, imagine you'll comment on these and what you think will be the main limitations of the paper. Yeah. And so, you know, one thing that's kind of interesting and does stand out is that they screened 8,000 patients. Of those 8,000 patients, 4,000 were enrolled but then only 1,500 were randomized. And so something has happened along the way where a lot of people were not ultimately randomized in the trial. And, you know, that always brings up concern for potential for things like selection bias. Other concerns would be that, well, the follow-up was only to 90 days. And so, yeah, that is three months, but what about longer-term outcomes? And so I think those are some of the, the you know, first couple of things that stood out for limitations of the study. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so, you know, with all that in mind, what would you say is the big take-home point from this study? Well, it looks like for select patients with appendicitis, antibiotics may be a reasonable option as long as you have good follow-up in place. Uh, because, of course, you want to make sure that patients are going to be reliable enough that if things aren't getting better or if they might get worse and need surgery, that they are going to, you know, following up appropriately so that they don't get uh, sicker as an outpatient. For sure. Yeah, seems reasonable. And so how do you think in the end this is going to change your practice at the end of the day? Well, again, I'm not a surgeon, so I will not be offering any surgery to patients with appendicitis, but I suspect that I will continue to see more patients with appendicitis ultimately getting admitted to medicine, not because of the appendicitis itself, but more because they have comorbidities. They need to be treated with antibiotics, and maybe they're now having secondary issues like, you know, DKA or something else. So I think as internists, we will be seeing more of this. You know, with patients who were treated with antibiotics, seven out of 10 patients were able to avoid surgery, and they had 
less missed work. The other thing that I think is kind of neat about what the trial investigators did is, you know, they really tried to focus on patient relevant outcomes. And in fact, patient input was used right from the design of the trial to then identify outcomes that patients themselves thought would be most important to them. So kudos to the trial investigators for that. Great. Yeah. Thanks for taking us through that study. Really, uh, really neat findings there. Move on to study number three. So remind me, which paper are we going to be talking about next? So this was a paper done by Quell et al. It was published in the Lancet Infectious Diseases just in December 2020, so hot off the press. Uh, and the title of the paper was Defining Persistent Staph aureus Bacteremia, a Secondary Analysis of a Prospective Cohort Study. Great. So what was the research question here? So what, what the authors were asking here was essentially what duration of Staph aureus bacteremia is associated with a significant increase in mortality or metastatic infection rates? I love to talk about Staph aureus bacteremia when I've got trainees on the ward, but you tell me, why is this important to you? Uh, well, you know, I, I thought this was a pretty compelling question to answer because, at least in the literature, they have known for a while that persistent Staph aureus bacteremia has been associated with things like increased mortality, increased rates of metastatic infection. But the definition of that has been quite vague, and they've used various cutoffs for what persistent really means, anywhere from two to seven days. And so as a result, it's been really difficult for clinicians to really know, well, when should I really escalate therapy or think about additional investigations for source control if I have a patient with a persistently positive blood culture? And so the idea is if we can kind of quantify the additive risk, which each additional day of bacteremia, maybe we'll be a bit better suited to answer that question, hence the study by the authors. Very good. So how did they design this study? Uh, so this was, um, as mentioned, uh, a secondary analysis of uh, quite a large multi-center prospective cohort study in Europe involving 17 centers total distributed between the UK, Spain, and Germany. What they did was they included patients who were over 18 years old, admitted to hospital with a finding of monomicrobial staph aureus and at least one of their blood cultures during the admission. They did have some exclusion criteria. For example, they excluded patients who had no follow-up blood cultures after the initial positive, or if they had delayed follow-up cultures happening at least a week after the initial one. They also excluded patients who had delayed start of antibiotics happening over three days after the first positive blood culture, or those who had staph aureus felt to be a contaminant within their blood culture based on review from a physician with either infectious diseases or medical microbiology training. Lastly, they also excluded polymicrobial bacteremias. So this, these had to be monomicrobial staph aureus uh, in the blood cultures and those with a previous staph aureus bacteremia in the last 12 weeks. In terms of study protocol, what they did for these inpatients with staph aureus bacteremia was they defined the total duration of bacteremia as an antibiotic-adjusted duration, meaning that they counted the duration as the first day of active antibiotics after the initial positive blood culture until the last positive blood culture was drawn and resulted. Resulted. Um, and they allowed the treating physicians in this case to actually choose the timing and the frequency of the follow-up blood cultures that were drawn. Primary outcome was all-cause 90-day mortality, subdivided by the duration of bacteremia. And their secondary outcome, the main one was looking at the incidence of new metastatic foci of infection. Okay. So tell us, what did the patients look like? So they included a total of 987 patients in this secondary analysis. Uh, the median age was 65 years old and 37% of them were female. On average, they were moderately comorbid with a Charleston comorbidity index of two on average. About a quarter of them had diabetes, about a quarter of them had at least moderate CKD, and about 18% had CHF. 
Looking at the type of bacteremia they had, most of them were MSSA infections, and only about 11% were MRSA. In looking at the patients who had persistently positive blood cultures, about 32% of patients, so 315 out of 987 in the study, had bacteremia that was persistent for over one day while on active antibiotic therapy. Um, So the majority of the patients, around 70%, had bacteremia for one day or less. In the patients with persistently positive bacteremia, uh, the median duration was about three days. Okay, so what was the main finding? Uh, So for their primary outcome, they found that overall in the whole study cohort, the 90-day mortality was about 28%, and they found it with any additional day of bacteremia beyond one day, that 90-day mortality increased, as you might expect. So with the comparator group, which was the patients with one-day bacteremia, the mortality at 90 days was, was about 22%, increasing to 39% with those with two to four days of bacteremia, 43% to the, in those with five to seven days, and around 36% with those having over seven days of bacteremia. They did also do uh, what they called a time-dependent analysis using a Cox regression model, which did show that for every additional day of bacteremia up to four days total, there was a progressive increase in the hazard ratio for 90-day mortality, which ranged between 1.7 to 1.9. But they also found that this increase in hazard ratio did actually plateau after about four days of bacteremia as well. They also found that compared to patients with only one day of bacteremia, the earliest cutoff showing both the significant an early increase in hazard ratio for 90-day mortality was found in patients with two days of bacteremia, meaning that this was the earliest point where which they could differentiate patients who died and those who didn't. And in terms of their secondary outcomes, they found that uh, a new metastatic focus of infection was more common in those with over one day of bacteremia, also as we might expect, with a rate of about 6% in those with one day of bacteremia, and anywhere between 8 and 22% in those with over one day of bacteremia, with an average rate of about 13%. Okay, so it sounds like overall, you know, the longer that someone was bacteremic, the worse their outcomes were. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, what were some of the limitations that you think for this study? Well, you know, there, there are a couple I think that would be important to talk about. You know, for, for one, the way that they define bacteremia was antibiotic adjusted. And so, you know, oftentimes in the hospital, we do start patients on effective antimicrobials even before they have their first positive blood cultures. And so their definition of bacteremia duration doesn't actually count on those who actually started on great antibiotics to begin with and who are actually receiving more days of effective therapy. Um, I think another thing that would be important to bring up is that there was a bit of heterogeneity in the timing of the follow-up blood cultures because they let clinicians use their own discretion as to when to draw them, and especially in those with over a day between the patient's last positive and their first negative blood culture, there can be a lot of ambiguity as far as, well, how long did this bacteremia really persist in between? And, and for what it's worth, they did actually try to address this by using what they called an interval-censored approach, where they essentially assumed a, a normal distribution of the true bacteria duration, and they assigned an expected duration of bacteremia to each patient, and they compared that with the results without using this censored approach, and apparently this didn't change their overall conclusions. The last thing to mention would be the, the idea that there might be some confounding by indication happening here, meaning that in those with more severe disease, there could have been a tendency to do earlier, more frequent blood draws in blood cultures, which could have led to maybe a higher 90-day mortality signal on the earliest possible cutoff, which was day two of bacteremia, compared to other days. 
Okay, fair enough. Yeah, like as it is an observational study, there's always going to be some concerns about you know residual confounding that you just can't control for. I think there was also a question about some generalizability issues. I don't remember the detail, but I think they tried to replicate this in a subset of non-European-based patients, and for some reason, like the the results just didn't quite pan out. So some question about generalizability too. But regardless, uh, you know, what would you say? What was your take-home point? Well, you know, at least looking at the findings of this paper, I would say that the take home is that it looks like patients with over one day of staph aureus bacteremia do have increased 90 day mortality and risk of metastatic infections. And would you say is this changing practice for you? You know, I think I would say it would change my practice in terms of at least providing a bit of a consistent guideline as to when clinicians should actually draw their repeat blood cultures, because I think we found that there's a lot of practice variation just between clinicians in terms of when they'll actually do it. But as far as actually changing what you do in terms of getting repeat imaging to look for metastatic infection based on a positive repeat blood culture, I'm not so sure because I think there's a lot of implications for overuse of diagnostic imaging. And I think a lot of clinicians might hesitate to do a pan-CT scan on any patient with a repeat positive blood culture at the day two mark, even if there's a slight increase in metastatic infection rate as shown by this paper. Yeah, it's always hard to know. I mean, I think that the paper reminds us that Persistently positive blood cultures is concerning. And so, but the timing for when is it that you pull the trigger on more thorough investigations, like even, you know, the transesophageal echo instead of just the transthoracic, it still seems like it comes down to kind of a clinical gestalt for what your pretest probability is. But I think it does show the importance that persistently positive blood cultures are concerning for staph aureus. And you need to, one, keep a close eye on these patients, but two, really ask yourself, when am I going to do more thorough investigations to assess source control? Okay. Great. Well, let's move on to the last paper, and that one is called The Effectiveness of Oral Vancomycin for Prevention of Healthcare Facility Onset C. diff infection in Target Patients During Systemic Antibiotic Exposure. And this was by Johnson et al. And so, for the record, and you know, we usually try to present relatively recent papers, and when I saw this online, it said published September 1st, 2020 from Clinical Infectious Disease, and I thought, great, September, that's not too long ago. I think it was actually published online for first in 2019. So maybe some of our listeners will be familiar with this paper. But from my perspective, we'll just say September 1st, 2020, when it came into print. (laughs) Sounds good. I'm sure they will still be interested to hear the results regardless. Uh, So so what was the research question from this paper? So what they wanted to know was, is oral vancomycin effective for preventing healthcare-related C. difficile? Okay. And and so why do you think this is an important question to ask? Well, C. difficile is bad. It's associated with morbidity, mortality, and it's expensive. It's the commonest healthcare-associated infection. There have been some observational studies that have suggested oral vancomycin might be an option for both secondary but also primary prevention. But vanco, you know, as with anything in medicine, is not without side effects. It does affect GI microflora. There is also an association for overgrowth of vancomycin-resistant enterococcus. Um, And so this study was really trying to help clarify, is there a role for vancomycin for primary prevention or not? Mm -hmm. Important question to address for sure. And, And so what did the authors do in terms of their study design to look into that? So this was an open-label, single-center, randomized control trial. They tried to identify high-risk patients for C. diff infection, and this was based on a few different factors. 
first was those over the age of 60, as well people that were recently hospitalized prior to the index visit, and who also received antibiotics during that prior recent hospitalization. The population for this study was uh, these high-risk patients who were then newly admitted to hospital for over 72 hours and who were now on antibiotics again for a variety of reasons. They excluded patients if they were unable to swallow Vanco, if they were on flagell for some other indication, if they're on a probiotic, if they had an allergy to Vanco, or if they had known or suspected active C. diff prior to inclusion. Patients were randomized to oral vancomycin versus nothing. So for vanco, it was dosed 125 milligrams orally once a day, and this was continued for up to and including five days until after completion of the systemic antibiotics. The primary endpoint was incidence of C. difficile, and they had a few secondary endpoints, including the cost as well as new VRE colonization rates. And patients were followed up to about three months following discharge. Okay, so we have a group of patients who are high risk for C. difficile infection, getting prophylactic oral vancomycin. And so I think you already kind of commented on it, but what did these patients end up looking like, those were, who were enrolled? So this was a small study. You know, 106 patients were enrolled. Uh, six had to be excluded for a few different reasons, but ultimately 50 patients were randomized to each group. Most were over the age of 70, about 30% were female, and the majority were white. Uh, of note, high-risk antibiotic exposures were not balanced between the two groups. So for example, in the vancomycin group, there were lower rates of clindamycin usage, but higher rates of having been exposed to a carbapenem or a fluoroquinolone. Okay. And so with that in mind, what were the main results that the authors found? Well, in the group of patients who were given oral vancomycin, zero out of those 50 had C. difficile. In the group that got nothing, there were six cases of C. difficile out of 50. You know, when you looked at other things like the secondary outcomes of adverse effects, there wasn't much in the way of any adverse events. Uh, one patient in the Vanco group did have some mild GI side effects. There were no new cases of VRE colonization associated with vancomycin usage. And then they did look at this kind of cost effect as well. And based on their numbers, they estimated that the average wholesale price was about $26 per patient. And they had some internal data to suggest that a C. diff infection, on the other hand, would add about $2,600 to the hospitalization admission cost. So uh, some findings to suggest, you know, kind of a cost benefit as well. Okay, so that also seems pretty encouraging for prophylactic vanco to begin with. But what do you think are some of the main limitations with this study? Well, of course, you know, like it was a small study, it was a single center design, and there was not a placebo control. And so, you know, there are a few issues right there. There was also some issues with patients being lost to follow up as well. Okay, and so what's the main take-home point from all this? Well, this small study does seem to suggest that giving oral vanco might be helpful. So based on their numbers, if you gave oral vanco to nine patients for an average of 12 days, it would actually prevent one episode of C. difficile. Wow, okay. And so, I mean, with all that, do you think this is going to change your practice specifically? I mean, I think that this is a very interesting study. I don't know that it's practice changing yet, but I think if this data can be replicated in a larger multi-center randomized control trial, then this would be a really big deal. I think, you know, I'm sure you've seen this, but I've seen lots of patients who get C. diff and the outcomes can be terrible. So if there was something that was safe, effective, and not very costly, that would be really important to know about. So I don't think we're there yet, but I think, I, I hope someone is looking into this in a bigger study so that we can kind of answer the question definitively.
Absolutely. I would never wish C. diff on anyone that I know. So thanks for taking us to that paper, John. Great. So that is the four papers. So Jason, thank you so much for helping us out with those. That was great. The thing that we always like to kind of end our rapid fire show with is what we call the good stuff. And the good stuff is just that something good doesn't necessarily have to be related to medicine, but was there anything that caught your eye recently that would be worthy of the good stuff designation? Well, so, so what I saw in the news lately was actually pretty encouraging. It was a, a video, and we'll have the link, I think, in the show notes later as well. But it was a video of a Bangra dancer located in Whitehorse celebrating his first dose of getting the Moderna COVID vaccine. And I thought this was pretty amazing because he's not in your typical age group, 65, 75 plus. I think he's probably, you know, in his 30s to 40s or so. And it just kind of highlights that in some places, well, Whitehorse specifically, COVID vaccines are now open to those who are 18 and up. And it just kind of brings to mind the idea that, well, this long anticipated rollout of COVID vaccines is finally happening in Canada. And while we still have to practice our distancing, wear our masks for, for a while to come, it maybe gives us a little bit of reason for a bit of cautious optimism. So I just wanted to share that. I like that. I think I've seen his videos before, but it's nice to know that, uh, you know, the vaccine is here and it's just we're trying to get it out to people as quickly as possible. So that's really nice. Great. Thanks. No, thanks. And and so what uh, piece of good news did you have for us here today? Well, I know that I think you might have seen this paper too, but this was just a really nice story. So Bonnie O'Reilly is a hockey mom. Two of her sons went on to play in the NHL and one of her sons, Ryan, actually happened to win this thing called the Stanley Cup back in 2019. There's also this person named Graham Nesbitt and Graham Nesbitt was the manager of the local hockey rink where her boys grew up playing hockey together and often he would let them get on the ice early so they could practice and skate around. So fast forward and unfortunately Mr. Nesbitt, he had developed renal failure due to IgA nephropathy and was going to need a transplant. So a bunch of people from the local community signed up to see if they could be eligible to donate and sure enough, Bonnie turned out to be a match and she happily donated her kidney to this man who had a big role in her kid's hockey development to just really nice story. We'll have a link for that on our website too. That's really heartwarming. I think I did read that article and they called it the assist of a lifetime. And that's great. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's a really good line. Assist of a lifetime is is right. (laughs) All right. Well, Jason, thank you so much for being on the show with us today. And uh, hopefully we can do this again soon sometime. Yeah, I hope so too. Thanks for having me, John. It's great. Okay. Thanks a lot. The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Special thanks to our audio editor, Emilio Garcia Flores. Also thanks to founder of the Rounds Table, Amol Verma, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, the editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all of the support.